Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. And while you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Welcome to another week uh, in quarantine. Are you you still holding together? Still maintaining some sense of sanity. I uh, decided I need to get out a little bit more. The commute of you know four steps across the room hasn't quite been enough to keep me active, so I need to make a more concerted effort on that. To start this episode, I want to thank a couple of new Patreon contributors. So if if like them, you you want to contribute, help us out with uh, funding the storage costs, the website, you know, all the stuff that we have to pay for here with the podcast, you know, please go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast. And a big thanks to Megan and Gloria for uh, joining our group uh, as of uh, patrons on there. Yeah. Thanks guys. All right. Uh, Glenn, um, with the new environment, I'm sure you're, you're having to change up how you, uh, how you do training. You got some, uh, some things to share with the, with with our listeners. Yeah, wanted to just let people know that yes, having to pivot here in the business model, and because so many trainings have been canceled out for the year, I have decided to start working with Evolve Forensics. That's of course Alice White, and she is graciously allowing me to piggyback on her webinars and create some webinar content for her for her website so if you're interested in checking out these webinars go to evolve forensics that's e-v-o-l-v-e forensics.com and you'll find uh, there's i think three webinars that have been added including one that is like a continuation of one of her current webinars so if you're interested in getting some training that method please go to evolve forensics.com sounds great i think that's going to become Somewhat of a new normal here uh, over the next little bit, and probably will will continue on even after things uh, get back to normal. You know, for a lot of agencies. Yeah, for sure. This week, you know, uh, kind of a surprise part three of our uh, "How to Fix a Drug Scandal" series. Uh, we actually got a, a tweet uh, on Twitter from uh, our guest today, and then after some contact, set up uh, this time to to do an interview. So I'd like to very much welcome Luke Ryan to our podcast. Luke, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Good to be here. I, uh, I know you you listened to both episodes uh, that we've done so far on the podcast, and so you, you probably heard Glenn and I's just you know astoundment at some of the things that came out in that uh, documentary. So you know, I hope you're prepared to to field some questions. Uh, you know, as we kind of dive into a little bit more depth uh, as to your involvement in the whole thing. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, you really caught us off guard when you actually reached out to us. I mean, or through through Twitter, uh, we were just surprised that a star of your magnitude had, <laughs> had listened to our humble little podcast. Uh, yeah, yeah, star of my magnitude. Uh, I'll, I'll file that one away. Uh, I'll. I'll uh, you, you have me blushing here in uh, Western Massachusetts. Well, how did you come across the podcast in the first place? I mean, usually our listening audience are other fingerprint experts. Yeah, so um, I've been very curious with the uh, reaction uh, of people to the documentary. It's one of those things you live it for for seven years, and then somebody turns that into three and a half hours. And um, because I just have so little objective perspective on the whole thing, I've been when when I. Uh, see that somebody does a podcast or writes a review. I've been very just kind of interested to uh, step outside my own experience and see how it, it landed on on folks like you. 
You know, when Eric and I had watched and reviewed the Making a Murderer series, we were uh, pretty enamored and taken with some of the local passionate attorneys that were involved in that. I think Laura Nyrider, I think was her name, mm-hmm. and in the in the great work that she had done in that. And you were kind of our Laura in this series, <laughs> and we we both kind of fell in love with you and really enjoyed your passion and your. Your, your dedication to your clients. I, I don't remember exactly what we had said in the episode, and but Eric and I both were just, I think, fairly amazed at even when you started off working with the original uh, other attorney in the case, and I, I imagine life kind of gets a hold of you and you go off and do your own things. And even, you know, he had to let, let it go, but you really stayed with it and just kept tenaciously pursuing it. What what was the motivation behind that? Well, I mean, it, it starts with the fact that uh, I, I was representing people who uh, the state wanted to put in a cage. And that uh, anytime I get that assignment, uh, I, I really, I, I like to sleep at night and I like to feel like I, I've done everything in my power to to be the kind of attorney that I would want if I was in their position. So that's just sort of uh, the way that I hope to approach any case. But in this particular case, it, I, I just had this very seemingly simple request to want to look at evidence, and I never got a, an answer that was satisfactory as to why I couldn't. It seemed like uh, the, the, the issue really hinged on uh, stuff that I wasn't able to observe with my own two eyes, and it just felt like it would have been a dereliction of my duty if I didn't do everything in my power to conduct the inspection that eventually led to what you saw on, on, on Netflix. Right, right. Well, let me, let's back up for a second and go through, you know, our, our typical initial questions for uh, you know every guest that comes on our show. Give us a little bit of background, uh, how you got into law, uh, and then uh, how you got involved in this you know, case slash documentary overall. Sure. So I, I grew up in Western Massachusetts, where I, I continue to live. Um, I'm actually fifth generation Northampton, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, both my father and my grandfather uh, were lawyers who went on to become district court judges at the courthouse uh, right across the street from my office. So the, the law was kind of in my family. And growing up, I was pretty sure I wanted nothing to do with it. So <laughs> I um, was not the most serious of uh, students when I went to college. I used to tell people that I majored in keg tapping. Uh, <laughs> and when I got out of school, I spent a, a few years, I guess you, you could either say uh, trying to be a writer or just plain old floundering. And then uh, in my late 20s, I uh, was put in a position where I saw an injustice and thought to myself, geez, it would be nice to be a lawyer at a moment like this. And it, uh, it, it, it kind of felt like this delayed calling. And so when I was 30 years old. I started uh, law school, worked my way through it. And when I uh, graduated, I, I clerked for a couple of years for a wonderful federal judge here in spring in Western Massachusetts named Michael Ponzer. Couldn't ask for a better mentor. Did two years with him, and then I joined the firm uh, that I, uh, where I currently practice, with three other just really fantastic, wonderful lawyers. Your name to me, Luke Ryan, sounds like the perfect name for an actor or a soap opera star. <laughs> I mean, it is. It it, it it sounds like a soap opera character name. It's such a great name. I'm very jealous of your name. 
Yeah, it's it's done all right for I, I was named after my grandfather. I'm Luke F. Ryan. I'm Luke Fitzsimons Ryan. And uh, he was Luke Ferdinand Ryan. So I even feel like I did pretty good with the F. I, I, I'm not sure I would have wanted to be Ferdinand. No offense <laughs> to any Ferdinands out there. Uh, thank you. I'll, uh, I have no, no intention to change it anytime soon. For sure. Yeah, it sounds like uh, Glenn is jealous of the, the double first name that uh, you <laughs> right. and I both have. Like Wendy's founder, Dave Thomas. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So how, how did you get contacted to do this documentary? I think it started with uh, a Rolling Stone article that was uh, written about the two drug lab scandals that was uh, published in January of 2018. And uh, that really, I think, uh, brought some national attention to the this whole sordid tale. Aaron Lee Carr, the amazing uh, director who uh, was, uh, I guess, hired to... to take on this project, uh, reached out to me and I do what, you know, I'm sure if we all do these days when somebody calls you on the phone and I, so I kind of looked her up and she's the daughter of a former New York times uh, reporter, David Lee Carr. And, uh, for somebody who I think just turned 30 years old, a, a pretty amazing filmmaker who's done some really fantastic work. Uh, so it, it seemed like somebody who would give this, experience that I was having and continue to have uh, some thoughtful attention. And it seemed like it would be in the interests of my clients to participate in it. So I, with their permission, of course, made the decision that I I don't often make to participate in this kind of project. Hmm. So before we get into uh, the specifics of this case and and go headlong into uh, drug analysis, I want to ask you, uh, you know, a couple of questions about the normal topics for uh, for our show as, as a one of those kind of check the box. Hey, we covered it. Now we can move on. <laughs> Fingerprints. So have you ever have you ever been involved in a uh, you know a case where um, a defendant was up against latent fingerprint evidence? I have uh, probably about a half dozen cases where okay. fingerprint evidence became uh, relevant, and it, it's I haven't had one in a couple of years, so it's. Uh, you know, it's it's in this kind of no pun intended latent kind of part of my brain where uh, I, I think you could probably probe and we could get to a point where uh, you know some stuff would come back. You know, I uh, you know the Brandon Mayfield kind of part of my brain, we'll call it, from the defense attorney perspective. Right. Right. Yeah. So one of the questions I had, and I always like asking what we'll what we'll call lay people, and, and not that you're completely a lay person, but I'm just curious on your perspective as an attorney, how do you view the reliability of fingerprints? And in the context of, let's say, other forensic evidence like DNA, for example, or firearms examinations, I would say drug chemistry, but maybe not, uh, <laughs> not, not in this episode. Well, I mean, I think when the National Academy of Sciences uh, put out their groundbreaking report in 2009, I think they called DNA the kind of gold standard for forensic science, which means that fingerprints would be kind of competing for uh, silver or bronze. I, I, you know, I take a kind of, you know, neutral approach. I mean, I think it's important to, to, to be mindful of the limitations of any of these um, forensic sciences. But uh, I'm, I'm also aware that, you know, sometimes fingerprints are the, the best thing going for my client. It's not just because I'm a defense attorney that I hate fingerprint evidence. Sometimes I, I really want that science to be regarded as reliable by fact finders. So I think that 
from looking at what I know about fingerprints, uh, I, I think it's my my gut tells me is that it is a a discipline that is uh, somewhere certainly beyond handwriting analysis or bite mark or tool mark, but is not in the realm of DNA in terms of statistical probabilities. My, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my last time I looked into it, my understanding was that uh, this idea that there are no, no two people have the same fingerprints is, is something that is kind of part of the underlying discipline, but it's not something that has been verified in a kind of scientific way. Am I right about that or am I mixing this up with something? Well, I'd, I'd say you got it. Yeah, pretty close on. I think the only the only thing I would add in is is maybe it's not something that's possible to prove. But uh, other than that, um, I think in we, in discussions Glenn and I've had here on the show in ranking this and comparing what we think versus what you know lay people may think about uh, different forensic disciplines, I think you you kind of are very close to uh, or at least a little bit closer to our opinions than you know, maybe some people that that don't regularly deal with forensic evidence. So I, I wouldn't put you very far off at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I when I was listening to your pod the other night, one of the things I was really grateful that you uh, explored was the, just the issue of uh, of bias within uh, your field. And I think it in, affects every field. And just from you know the, the Mayfield case, I read the inspector general's report on that uh, years ago. And I can recall like the issue of uh, the suspect's religion not necessarily coming up when they made the identification, but once they know, oh, this guy's a Muslim, he's represented people who've been accused of terrorist things, I think the inspector general concluded that actually did play a part in whether they kind of circled back and and, and gave the identification through the fingerprints a, 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 the second look that may have been warranted. Yes, yeah, spot on. Uh, that's that's exactly accurate. Yeah, yeah, especially the even though this, there's a guy from Oregon that didn't really make sense with the ID. Once the investigators saw the other stuff, you know, they they viewed that religion as as fitting, you know, their 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 narrative of what to expect. And then one more question too. It, actually, one of our our listeners and friends of the show had the question. She was wondering, in light of like the NAS, for example, and you're obviously quite familiar with that report. The case in the documentary of Farak and Dukin, you know, here is an example of a laboratory that was not part of the criminal justice system. I mean, they're effectively, they were financed and funded and run by the Department of, of Public Health and not necessarily within contained within the law enforcement system. Law enforcement was a client of theirs, but not within that. And, you know, in the NAS report, they talked about separation of crime labs from law enforcement. And ironically, one of the fixes was to take it from the Department of Public Health and put it in a law enforcement system. But that was a good move because it put it into a laboratory that had, of course, quality assurance and quality control. So one of the things that she was curious about was, in general, Luke, what sort of fixes do you think would be appropriate for forensic science in the long term? What sort of long term fixes and uh, relationships do you see for forensic science? Well, one of the things that I think is really important is that it has to be funded. And, and I think that the experience of Amherst and in Hinton as well, I'm much more attuned with what the problems were in Amherst, but essentially you had a 
a lab that was grossly underfunded and had to cut all of these corners. So I, I think that, you know, the idea, particularly in the times we live in of, oh, you, you know, you're going to have to throw more money at a problem that doesn't exist. I, I think if we really thought about what the criminal justice system ought to be and what it ought to focus on, uh, I think we waste an extraordinary amount of money prosecuting a drug war. And if we really treated it like the public health crisis it was, then there would be lots of money that we would be able to devote to having forensic labs to, to handle the serious uh, cases, the murders, the arsons, the rapes. You wouldn't be in a position where you have backlogs with rape kits that last months and months and months, and you uh, have DNA cases that uh, leave people just languishing in jail. So uh, I think that's really the start. I mean, you you have these disciplines, but a lot of them uh, are, are, are run in ways that are just really a, compare them to the private sector and, and the resources available are, are really kind of shocking. So that's, I think, right out of the gate, the first thing that I, I would uh, respond to is what fix would, would really be appropriate. Yeah, now that is actually really interesting because the NAS report, of course, initially, the those criticisms and those recommendations were meant for Congress to generate funding and appropriate funds to fix those problems in the U.S. forensic science system. Unfortunately, as you probably know, the report came out at a time <laughs> when the market crashed, kind of like if it came out right today, uh, maybe not the best <laughs> financial times for a report that says we need lots and lots of money to fix this. Right. And yeah, and so I, th- I think that um, I-, I think we to the extent we are going to be get to the other side of where we are now with this pandemic, my hope is is that there will be this space for just people suddenly looking at the price tags of things, and we can think about whether or not mass incarceration makes sense, and whether we we can justify just in pure dollars and cents the amount of money we throw at you know the the prosecution of this drug war. So, I think if you start from the perspective of What we're funding right now, we need to add on to that to properly finance these disciplines. You're not going to get anywhere. But if you can think about where are the places that we could make huge cuts by using our system the way it, it, it really ought to be, then then maybe there is some room for, for more money for uh, these other disciplines. That's that's a very interesting perspective of, of redistributing funds to this area, because even reading through you know, some of the documentation that you provided us to, to review, Luke, it had me thinking a lot about funding and how it's difficult for a politician to to win an election or, re, or win a re-election if part of that involves, hey, we need to bring in more money to then fund these programs. But redistribution is, you know, uh, for reprioritizing where the funds go might be a solution to that. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ways that we've tried to fund our criminal justice system ha- have really been <laughs> crimes unto themselves. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, the, the DPH, the leadership at the Department of Public Health, I mean, this was in uh, on paper, but, you know, not part of the the law enforcement community. But in Massachusetts, by statute, DPH was partially funded by a drug analysis fund where the chemists, and they knew this, would 
a criminal defendant who was found guilty of a drug crime would have to pay money that would then go into the fund that the chemist would use for overtime and uh, supplies and things like that. So it created this sort of statutory institutional incentive to, on the questionable case, say, oh, yeah, we're going to call that a positive. Um, the other way that we funded our criminal justice system is through a series of user fees uh, where we've taken and, and uh, made defendants pay for the uh, uh, the experience of being prosecuted through probation, <laughs> supervision fees, victim witness fees, and, and they just add up. You get nickel and dimed all your way through the system, and that is proving to have been kind of a disaster. So I really do think it. we, we need to start from this premise that our criminal justice system ought to be focused on the most serious crimes. Like what are the things, the malum per se, uh, the thing that the kinds of crimes that we just know intrinsically are wrong and focus on that and these other uh, malum prohibitum we learned in law school, these uh, these things that we've just decided to call call illegal. Why are we doing that? That's a, that's a mistake. That's a misuse of funds that creates pressures on the system that cause injustice uh, throughout it. So I, I think that's the, the really the important lesson of this scandal and, and the, the hope for moving forward here. Well, but, but then how are the prison corporations going to uh, you know make their profits? <laughs> Sorry, that's a whole other issue. Let's not get into that, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> Glenn. Right. Well, I, on, on that talk about management and the finances, that's actually one of the first areas of questions. And uh, it was alluded to, Eric, just a second ago. Eric mentioned just prior to this episode, Luke, you provided us with a lot of documentation that we really appreciated and and things that have been gathered along the way and information that really wasn't in the documentary. And it was, I don't know, 150, 60 pages of, of reading material that has just blown my mind. And so we'll be referring to a, a lot to that throughout the episode. And so listeners or, or people that watch the scandal in the documentary may not know where this uh, all of this the source is coming from. So a lot of it will be coming from there. What I provided to you was a, a document that was filed in court. It's a publicly available pleading from the summer of 2016 that uh, attorneys uh, representing drug defendants had filed in court. So it's it's a uh, it's a document that's out in the public sphere. I just wanted to make that clear. Yep, sure. Every finding uh, or proposed finding of fact in there has little citations to where it's come from. And it, I mean, it all comes from people's statements and people's testimony and various documents that have been collected along the way. And I really appreciated that. It's basically a sourced document. And I, I suppose that the documentary alludes to this, but man, this document really goes into the detail of how this really was a failure of management as well. I mean, I know Eric and I talk quite a bit about, you know, the actions of Sonia Farrakh and a- Annie Dukin, but in this document, it goes into really how their management system had all of these r- real serious problems. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gross lack of any oversight and how even DHS had this d- new director that kind of treated, especially the Amherst lab, as a constant annoyance that she would rather just see 
uh, vanish. And she was constantly threatening to close it. And they were always trying to prove their numbers and and show their productivity. And even this director from time to time would seem to short shift them on some of the numbers. And then it appeared that they weren't as productive. And they were just numerous times they were nearly shut down. Can you speak to that a little bit and some of your observations there? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that is a little bit touched on in the documentary, but it's a really important uh, point to make is that Western Massachusetts and Boston have this really um, historically kind of fraught relationship. They're, the, the people in Boston kind of look at us as the, the, the hinterlands out here. And, and that translates into the way that things get funded. Uh, we're, we're out here in Western Massachusetts uh, perpetually uh, on the hook for things like the big dig in Boston and, and the way, and, and whether or not a, the sufficient funds come out this way is a battle that uh, local lawmakers are, are always having. Uh, on the flip side of that, I think there's the old uh, Chinese proverb that the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. And I think that in places like the Amherst Drug Lab, this idea that, you know, you could kind of do anything you wanted because there wasn't the oversight there should have been is another part of this kind of regional aspect of this situation. So at three points prior to the closure of the Amherst Drug Lab as a result of Sonia Ferrick's misconduct, the Department of Public Health announced plans to shutter the lab as a cost-saving measure. Uh, in 1989, they did this, and uh, the local lawmakers had to run to the governor, Governor Dukakis, and say, hey, you're, you're going to make us drive two hours east uh, to drop off these samples. Uh, and when we've got a, a lab here that is, you know, right in our backyard that we can uh, use to, to analyze these things. And they persuaded to the governor to overrule DPH. And then in 2009, this lab was back on the chopping block again. And then in 2011, the same thing. So DPH would when there would be an economic downturn and they'd have to do something about their budget, the Amherst Drug Lab was the place that they always turned to see if they could shave off a few hundred thousand dollars. And that's really what it was. It was only a few hundred thousand dollars to kind of keep the place running. It was that value that was so shocking, just how little money they were spending to, now they weren't running it correctly, but I mean, it, it really is shocking that it's such a small value to be running thousands of cases through that agency. Reading that whole part of the document really just kind of sent me back to, to you know, a similar experience, especially dur during the the last economic downturn, where similar kind of thing, where there was these threats of closing one of the regional laboratories and all the local law enforcement that was being served uh, in Arizona spoke up and to keep it open because it, it didn't make sense. You know, the like is detailed here in this document, the rent's free, electricity is free. Closing it isn't going to shut down the work. The work's just going to have to go all the way to Boston, and then all the people will have to just work in Boston instead. Where you know, obviously, they tried to keep themselves open by cutting corners. Where the solution is really just to fully fund the lab to provide that resource there locally. Right, and, and I mean the the upsetting thing about this was that the the 
the response from Amherst was to justify its existence, they would basically they took the the the, the scientific method, which should be at the heart of this. Uh, process of analysis, and they decided to replace it with this assembly line mentality. And so their whole mantra became output. How many samples are we churning out? That's how we can prove to Boston that we, our existence is something that needs to be protected. If we can handle the Boston backlog and, and, and how that kind of ended up being a problem in uh, on the science end is you had things like they wouldn't run blanks in between samples because that would, in the words of the lab supervisor, be a waste of 10 or 12 minutes to watch uh, an analysis happen that isn't going to lead to a a scientific conclusion that's important in the case. And you all know what the importance of blanks are in in this process. And, And it was every moment where they could do something like that it just compromised the integrity of the results of what they were doing. Yeah, I, we we noticed some of those cost-saving measures, and, and you're right, it was at the expense of quality, where instead of running drug standards, they created, quote-unquote, secondary standards. So they took street drugs and attempted to refine them themselves. And so they would get heroin off the street and analyze it, try to refine it, remove some of the contaminants, and then call it a drug standard. (laughs) That blew me away. Uh, Another thing was they cut out subscriptions to the Journal of Forensic Science, which was about 150 bucks a year because it was deemed a prohibitive cost. (laughs) $150 a year. Yeah, I mean, it was shocking at uh, some of these hearings where, uh, I mean, I'd go through, and and, and I'm really... uh, not somebody with a strong science background. So I'm, I'm looking at the mass spec, the, these squiggly lines on a piece of paper, and I'm trying to understand what I'm looking at. And I would get these samples or these, uh, this data from the lab, and I'd be looking at the, the mass spec for what was supposed to be the standard, and I'd be seeing peaks in it for caffeine, these adulterants that were in what was supposed to be this pure standard. And when I questioned the lab supervisor about it, he said, do you have any idea how expensive it is to actually purchase heroin from a pharmaceutical lab? You know, so yeah, we just get stuff off the street. And if it looks like it's a fairly pure sample, I'll, uh, you know, try to pull the adulterants out of it. And then when the next batch comes through, we'll measure it against what used to be this, the unknown street sample as our lab standard. And that's how they rolled over in Amherst. Wait, wait, wait. So they, they, they were telling you this? They had to. I mean, they're 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 pure standard. They'd run the standard through at the beginning of a run. Then they'd run right. one blank, and then they'd run twenty twenty five samples in a row. But when they'd run the first standard through the cocaine heroin mixture that they would give to the machine just to make sure it was running properly, you'd often have these adulterants that would show up. Right, that, extra peaks. Now, yeah. Did, were they were they describing this at all before this whole scandal? In other cases, just explaining how they did things, or oh, no, did, no, okay, no. This all all came to light after Sonia right. Farrick's arrest. So, Glenn, as as I was reading through this, one of the questions I immediately wanted to know was because you know you have a lot more experience in the drug chemistry uh, field than I do. Have you ever seen other labs make their own standards? 
No, 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 God, no, <laughs> no. I mean, using street drugs as a quote unquote standard is just, and it's, it's preposterous. Now, for sure, they are, they are expensive. And there was a really interesting uh, part of the document where one of the things that they weren't doing is they weren't actually running standards at all. They were really only running cocaine and heroin standards. Anything right. else, they were running against a library, a, a fixed library, which this mass spec library was likely not at the same settings or the same instrument parameters that they were running their their case samples, which I mean, the idea of just relying on this standard that had never been through their instrument uh, it was just sh- shocking to me. Yeah, I, I mean, this is how I kind of equated it. I mean, the Sonia Ferrick spent the first, better part of the first five years at, her, at the Amherst lab just existing these these standards that exist, starting with uh, liquid methamphetamines. But she went on to amphetamine, she went into ketamine, and she just plowed through these things. And the reason she was able to do that is because the the lab would not use these. These were sort of like the books in my law library that are kind of <laughs> sitting there and they look really nice, but we all know I'm just using my computer to do legal research. At the lab, <laughs> instead of using these samples that or these standards that she was pilfering, they would just, if it wasn't cocaine or heroin, they were just going to rely completely on the computer match quality. Wow. With the, with the blanks and, you know, Glenn, you, you had mentioned the, the scandal that came out of St. Paul's lab uh, in the first episode. We, we, I believe is when we talked about that. Second. Um, how they, they, the second one. Okay. Uh, that they also wouldn't be running blanks and th- they would just kind of crank it up to burn it off, to, to burn out whatever was still left in the column. But here it looked like, and correct me if I'm wrong, they when they occasionally would do a blank, which wasn't as often as they should have been doing it, but when they occasionally did, there would sometimes be residual peaks from the previous sample run, which then they would just ignore <laughs> and continue moving on. Right. They would essentially say, well, yeah, that's a weak peak. So we know that's not, you know, that that's that's not an actual valid from the from the the sample that's that's causing the reading, but as you go down the line, I mean, from one sample to the next, the dangers for uh, contamination and for false positives would just increase exponentially, and and they really didn't seem to care. Now, it, the similarities between what I was reading in there and what I observed here in St. Paul, and I don't know if you ever met those attorneys, Luke, that did the work here, but. And they, I mean, everything that they described was exactly what what was happening there. The the practices were were crazy. They they hadn't been really doing any maintenance on the instruments. They weren't changing what's called a septa. That's where you insert the drugs. Normally, you would change that if you're running thousands of samples. You change it practically every other day, maybe once a week, but they would go three to four months before changing it in Amherst. Uh, the not really keeping track of any. Anything in, in actual logs. One thing that wasn't discussed was I suspect they didn't even change their columns very often, which is another thing you would normally have to replace those columns because they just degrade over time. I mean, I, not running the blanks, no written SOPs, no training, potential sources of contamination, all of these things we observed here in St. Paul and they you know, did get shut down 
you know, and uh, had all of those issues addressed. As a non-chemist, you were still, I mean, you had to have been amazed by what you were reading. Yeah, and I mean, it was. It would. My job in any of these cases is to, you know, educate myself. So I would go to Swig Drug and say, all right, well, I can read this. This says these are the, these are the minimal recommendations that a uh, a forensic drug laboratory needs to meet. This is the floor. And you'd see things like, yeah, you have to have a code of ethics uh, for the lab. Uh, you have to do proficiency uh, testing. And and then I'd go through to discovery and, and it would just be a clear absence of these minimal things that you would expect. I, I came to think, I mean, and, and again, you're looking within this context of within at the Hinton Drug Laboratory, there are 18 different labs there, and the drug lab there was like the, the, the they were the stepchildren of the uh, Department of Public Health family. And then the Amherst lab was the satellite lab for the stepchild. So it was like the stepchild of the stepchild. <laughs> and, and they would get the hand-me-down instruments, these uh, GCMSs uh, that they had in Amherst. I came to think of them like the uh, the family uh, vehicle and grapes of wrath that were always breaking down <laughs> and you kind of had to have, and, and Sonia Farrick was like, that was part of her job was to kind of fix these things and, 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 and try to um, recalibrate and get these things running when they didn't have basic uh, components that would need to be refurbished on a, on, on a schedule, there was just none of that. It was it was a really kind of duct tape and band aid kind of operation. Yeah, and I, I have to ask this question. I mean, we I, I think we said something similar on the last episode. My defense attorney friends here, you know, when they first started asking the very first questions after decades of this work in St. Paul. They were shocked at how obvious all of these flaws were to them. And, and they were not scientists, they're not chemists, but they were just appalled at what they were hearing. And the first thing that they said that was so, I, I thought, insightful and resonant was shame on us as defense attorneys for not asking these questions decades earlier. How did this go on so long without us ever discovering it? I, I have to ask you that same question. How did you feel when you realized that some of these things could have fairly easily been discovered. Yeah, it is. It is really. I, I think that's uh, exactly the feeling that I I have in in coming out of this is that you know until uh, the Supreme Court decided Melendez Diaz on uh, June twenty sixth two thousand and nine, chemists like Sonia Farrick and Annie Dukin were shielded from having to come into court and kind of justify their work. Uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, case law up until then had allowed uh, them to simply fill out a certificate of analysis. And that was introduced to satisfy the government's burden of proving the chemical composition. But what- As testimonial. Exactly. Yeah. So, but once that decision came down and these analysts started showing up in court, it's really, you know, I, I and I'm part of the, the defense bar here, so I'm not, you know, blaming others. I mean, we really kind of fell down for a number of years in letting these indefensible forensic practices kind of go unchecked for so long. Uh, one of the issues I know you probably want to talk about at some point is, is BZP. I mean, there was... Mm -hmm. 
a substance that under Massachusetts law was not illegal. And there were 187 instances where chemists from the Department of Public Health classified it as a controlled illegal substance. And in none of those cases did a defense attorney say, wait a minute, time out. This isn't illegal. This is not under the uh, Massachusetts general law is something that my client is prohibited from possessing. So I think this whole forensic discipline is something that there was a dereliction of attention on the part of people in, in law enforcement, but it also on the defense bar. We, we really were kind of asleep at the wheel and not providing the kind of um, oversight and incredulity that you know, is, is appropriate to our profession. Yeah, so on that on that topic of the BZP, and for any listeners, this is uh, a drug that is called N-benzylpiperazine. It's basically like weak MDMA, which is basically like an ecstasy. You'll often find it as an adulterant in ecstasy or sort of an alternative to ecstasy. It's a club drug, and it comes in a tablet and has little logos and is often very colorful on it. And this was a real popular drug in raves and such in the 90s. And the, I think the feds had put it as a Schedule One drug in like early 2000s, 2002 or so. But the states are sometimes a little later to catch up to uh, classify these drugs. And as of 2011, Massachusetts had not scheduled it at all. It wasn't on their schedule. So as, as you point out, technically, it's not a controlled substance. It only becomes a controlled substance when it gets scheduled. And Massachusetts had had not done that at the time. What was amazing to me was that both these scientists, it was Farrakh and uh, Dukin, who were exchanging emails to each other, and they were aware of the fact that it had not been scheduled in Massachusetts, yet they were told by, I don't know who Cam was, but they were told and both agreed that they would still call it a Schedule 5 drug, which is like an over-the-counter prescription drug. So they were they they knew that this was not a, a, a controlled substance and yet reported it out deliberately as a Schedule 5 controlled substance. And that to me is criminal. It, it is what it is. It really, that it really is a criminal action. I was going to say, correct me if I'm wrong, Cam was the lab director, correct? Yes. <laughs> right. Okay. Well. <laughs> this, this is, you know, a point, this isn't even just these these two disgraced scientists. You know, this is lab policy. Because the 187 samples, again, weren't just from those two. It was from everyone who had written reports on this substance in the lab, right? Right. And and so this exchange that happened on in an email on on. April 22nd, 2011, between uh, Sonia Farrick and Annie Dukin. Sonia Farrick wrote to Annie Dukin and basically said, uh, hey, how do you guys, what do you do with BZP? Do you call it BZP or do you call it something else? And what she essentially signaled was, do you misrepresent the fact of what the substance is or do you misrepresent what the law is as to the status of that substance? And Annie Dukin wrote back and she says, oh, we we misrepresent the law. We say what it is. We just falsely claim that it's illegal and it's illegal federally, but the Massachusetts general laws have not made it so. And Sonia Farrick wrote back and said, yeah, that's what we do here too. You know how the mass general laws are for keeping up with the times. And essentially what they did is they took it upon themselves to act as this kind of super legislature. They, the chemists at these labs said, well, 
the, the lawmakers haven't gotten around to making it illegal. So we're just going to decide it, that it should be illegal and call it illegal. That's crazy. Now, I again, this was another um, person, a friend of the show that had a follow-up question here. She was wondering, when judges accept pleas or sentencing, aren't they required to check sort of the substance of the law and make sure that all elements have been proven? How did this escape the notice of 187 judges, prosecutors, and defense attorneys that nobody noticed that the thing that the person was being convicted of possessing was not illegal to possess. How, how is that even possible? Uh, again, I think what you're, you're left with is this incredible volume that, of cases that uh, these courts have to process. And when you're talking about a class EE substance, this is the, the least serious. I know that there are people, I've seen the, the, the dockets of people who went to jail for possession of BZP as a class E substance in Massachusetts, but it was a 60-day sentence. And so a judge who's in a, in a busy courtroom has a plea and is going to just basically try to get from point A to point B as fast as possible because they've got 10 more to do before lunch. And so they really rely on prosecutors and defense attorneys to make sure that you know all the boxes have been checked. Uh, but it, it's, it's one of those things where because of the volume of the work, the, the appropriate attention doesn't get paid to something like that, and, and, a, and a grave injustice is done. Yeah, and so this goes back to your original comment about where we're spending money and resources. It's a perfect exam, example of that, especially with a drug like BZP. And just to clarify, Cam is uh, Alan Stevenson, who was the supervisor of drug testing at the Amherst lab from the 80s until he retired in 08. That's correct. Yeah. Well, anyway, that that's absolutely um, mind blowing. I just I can't imagine a scientist. Well, I'm using scientists loosely here. Technician reporting something out deliberately, knowing that it it wasn't scheduled. That. Well, like I said, I, I can only think of it as just it's a truly a criminal action, but uh, one of many criminal actions in, in the documentary. Yeah, one thing I can say that is is kind of a frustration for me here is this stuff that you all find so outrageous and I find so outrageous. Nobody really else has has found it so. The the relief that happened in this case was really limited to the the fact that uh, Sonia Farrick was, uh, by her own admission, high the entire time she was at the uh, lab or suffering the debilitating effects of withdrawal, or that Annie Dukin admitted that she was dry labbing. But these larger practices, uh, this culture in which these criminal acts took place, that was not the reason that anybody got any relief. And I think that they, the gross misconduct on the part of these two chemists in some ways ended up kind of masking or su- sucking all the oxygen out of the, the the larger stuff that we all find so interesting or have found so interesting for the last 50 minutes. Yeah, you, that is a really good point, too. Yeah. I hope that, frankly, other defense attorneys get a chance to listen to some of these episodes and certainly the documentary, because Eric and I alluded to this in the previous episodes I mean, Eric and I are not naive or Pollyanna enough to think that, well, that's it. And we caught both labs. We got the St. Paul lab and the Amherst and Hinton lab. Well, that's (laughs) it. This has to be going on out there in more labs. And 
And if they're unaccredited, they're even more likely to be happening. Not that these things can't happen in accredited labs, but it's it's really the unaccredited labs that this stuff can just run rampant in and, and go undetected for decades. It's such a good point. And, and one of the things that I will say that uh, was so interesting is uh, amongst the assorted lab paperwork in Sonia Farrick's car, <laughs> um, she was actually printing out uh, instances where chemists at other labs had been caught doing what she was doing. There was a scandal in San Francisco. Uh, yeah, I read that. Yeah, and, and, and it, I think it was on Kamala Harris's watch where a chemist uh, essentially did the same thing. I mean, I think what you're you're left with here is, is if you're talking about like a national lesson here is in Massachusetts, our, the way that we fund the indigent defense system is far from perfect. I mean, it is... Well, the defenders are grossly underpaid, both on the, the public defender side, the people who do full-time public defense and people like me who occasionally take court-appointed cases. But there are caseload um, limits. There are hours limits that can be done. So when you get these cases, somebody like me can, you know, ro- we can roll up our sleeves and we can, and we can you know, look into these uh, practices. It, so many other jurisdictions across the country where these scandals haven't been unearthed, they're meet them and plead them jurisdictions. They're places where public defenders uh, can't do the most basic investigation uh, on their, their client, let alone like a forensic investigation. And, and that all they can do is get their name, date of birth, and then bring it before a judge and plead them out because the volume of the of the work is is so over the top. So I I absolutely uh, think that there are Sonia Ferricks and Annie Dukins at labs throughout the country, and the only reason they haven't come to light is because of the the way in which the the, the representation is is allocated. Well, it, it doesn't even have to be Sonia Ferricks and Annie Dukins smoking and crack and and faking tests, but just doing the practices that was normal in that lab for everybody, right? right? That's that's like what you're suggesting is the underlying cause uh, problems, right? Wow. So I had a question about when the Massachusetts State Police they start to take over these Department of Health labs in July of 2012. Right? Is that right? That's correct. So uh, and then there's this um, an audit and a bunch of questions that get raised. So Mass State Police ended up uh, on July. First, 2012, by statute, taking over the Department of Public Health's drug labs at Hinton and Amherst. And it actually took them until August 7th to make a trip out to Amherst with their quality assurance, quality control team. And they did kind of a walkthrough then, and then they circled back and came back in October to do a more formal, but still, in their own words, friendly audit of the lab and and an attempt to identify things that would need to be uh, remediated in order to bring them up to a place where they could conceivably be accredited. Yeah. In fact, uh, that friendly audit phrase stood out to me because I mean, (laughs) I know why you highlighted it, but I'll I'll tell you, tell you this, Luke, that whenever QA says we're coming to do a friendly audit, that does not mean what it sounds like. That means get ready for it, (laughs) get ready to take it. Uh, it, right. There's no such thing as a, a friendly QA audit. And I suspect that they were rather horrified by what they observed. And I was reading a lot between the lines. I think this was a matter of them trying to be careful about 
what they were saying at the same time recognizing that they had inherited a rather gigantic problem on their hands. That that may that may be true. I mean, I, I you you somebody in the industry may see that word and, and interpret it differently than I do. So I appreciate that perspective. <laughs> so uh, the, the in the in this document here is a, there's a list of 18 issues that were uh, documented and and found by the audit team members. Pretty serious stuff. Of, yeah, they're they're big one. You know, no quality manual, no logs. You know, no you know not securing evidence. Not no training records, no training program, no check of reliability of the agents, you know, uh, no blanks, no positive controls, like all these issues. And going back to the documentary again, it was this initial of oh, it's just these two cases for Sonia Farak, and then it was just these six months worth of cases. When when did this list come out detailing all of the issues that were found there? Because it looks like it was dated. October 2012, even before they found out what Sonia Farak had been doing. Right. So that's a great question. So what happened was, is they went in October to do this audit, October 2012. Sonia Farak gets arrested on January 18th, 2013. The audit was not complete at that point. Uh, they had not produced the document that uh, listed these 18 things. And so... Uh, when the one of the authors of the document was uh, testified, you know, I asked her about this and she essentially said, you know, we had started this project. And even though the lab was shut down, it didn't look like it was going to be reopened. We kind of had to just kind of follow through and, and finish what we started, even though it was at that point kind of a fruitless exercise. So but when we by the you know, fall of 2013, they had produced this document and the Sonia, the initial evidentiary hearing into that we did uh, before Judge Kinder that's referenced in the, the film, there were two questions that right. he flagged. One was the timing and scope of Sonia Ferrick's misconduct. The other was, what do we do about this whole uh, lab uh, situation that's identified these 18 problems that in need of remediation? Is this something that is separately or in conjunction with the ferric misconduct something that could be grounds for relief. Um, so that was that was an, a, originally just a part of this case, and it, it and the, the ultimate conclusion of basically every judge who has looked at it as well. Yeah, it would have been nice if they were crossing their t's and dot their eyes, as the the lab supervisor said. But uh, <laughs> that's that's really not the big problem. <laughs> Cross, no, no, this is. <laughs> We're not to the point of crossing T's and dotting I's. We haven't put a word onto the paper yet. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. This this did come out then fairly early, but the judge looking at all this was like, eh, nope, still fine. We can still keep people in jail uh, even with all of these problems. Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, we, we certainly learned more as, as we dug in, as this litigation became protracted. Um, we, we were able to learn a lot more, bring a lot more before the court. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, nobody really looking at this decided that this was an independent ground for any relief. I mean, one of the the, the most frustrating parts in the whole, and not frustrating, but amazing parts to me was that when we did the evidentiary hearing in 2016, that really the focus was on prosecutorial misconduct, the... Uh, Commonwealth of Massachusetts called this expert from a lab 
in Connecticut to come in and say um, essentially that they weren't crossing T's and dotting I's. And he got up and he talked about, you know, how he his view of the lab was such that, you know, it really didn't affect the reliability of anything that was going on there. And as he was testifying, it occurred to me, this man has not read this document that I forward to you that's in the file. He, he hasn't looked at any of these things. He couldn't if he's a lab director. So that was that was the only question yeah. I asked him. I, I handed him this document. And I said, have you read this? Have you ever seen this before? And he said, no. And I said, okay, no further questions. I mean, he had no basis for his expert opinion as far as I was concerned. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the relief really came down to what Sonia Farrick was doing and not these practices, which I, I find to just be, to this day, uh, absolutely incredible. Yeah. And you raised a, an issue in this document that was real similar to the St. Paul issue, what was... I, I think even the court it sort of looked at all these problems as well. Yeah, that, that seems real bad and all, but can't we just retest this at the state lab? And if it's drugs, then, well, you know, then it was a, a just conviction. And you, you raised the same issue that they raised here, which is not necessarily because what would have come into the laboratory could have been contaminated by all of these terrible practices. And even if you do detect drugs at this point, given the sensitivity of the instruments, how reliable uh, it is a positive result. And given some of the things that were described in here, Farrakh's actions of swapping things out and cutting into evidence, and we'll get to some of that, she, she really tampered a lot more with evidence than I think I ever got from the actual documentary. I, yeah. I, how could you trust any of this stuff after these interactions? Yeah. I mean, in the one case that I had during this, uh, he's featured in the film, Rafael Rodriguez, to get him out of jail after it came out that, you know, we had these treatment records and they showed admissions by Miss Frock that she'd been abusing and stealing drugs at the lab her entire time there. They took the sample in his case and they sent it out to another chemist who, who tested it and certified that it was cocaine. And she came in and testified. And as uh, I was cross-examining her, I realized that the uh, the mass specs were showing peaks for adulterants in this uh, sample now that were not present when Ms. Farrick did her testing years before. And so the question isn't simply, does this sample contain a controlled substance, but is this sample in the same condition uh, has it been tampered with? You have to introduce the same thing you took off the street, not something that it, you know is, is you know been, been modified or changed in a way. And so it, it, they quickly gave up on the idea that they they had the means to do this massive retesting to the extent samples hadn't already been destroyed. And even if they could and did, there were always going to be questions about whether or not. Uh, the sample was in the condition it was when it was first received. I think the phrase you used was vectors for contamination. And I, I really like that phrasing because, and there's no doubt, all the the crazy behavior and lack of hoods and proper ventilation and bad space and work. Yeah, of course. I mean, how could you have any faith or reliability in this as 
quote unquote evidence. Right. And, and I mean, and that in the, it extends too. I mean, it's, but that's the, what happens before a, a samples would get to the lab where it was pretty remarkable too. One of the things you may have noticed was Springfield, the biggest jurisdiction out here in Western Massachusetts, their evidence custodian at their police department, instead yeah. of getting these samples and sealing them and bringing them to the, the lab, as was protocol, he, he would rely on the heat sealer at the Amherst Drug Lab to do the sealing upon submission. And Sonia Farrick knew this, and she knew on Wednesdays this guy would be showing up, and so she would get into work early, and she'd turn down the heat sealer that he would use to seal the samples so that there wouldn't be a good seal and she could just pull them apart and get into them. But those samples were transported in a single bag with all other samples and the dangers for cross-contamination before they even hit Amherst were, were very significant. Yeah. It's insane. That's sure. just insane. So this brings up a good point that I wanted to, to, to ask about in the documentary, you know, I came away from there Basically thinking that, uh, under the impression anyway, that uh, Sonia Farrakh, you know, had continued on with the testing, but you know, they're just looking at the numbers that she was producing. There's definitely questions of whether or not she was actually conducting the test each time, and may have been dry labbing as well. But further, that that she had been stealing or positioning herself to receive evidence on certain cases that she wanted the drugs, and she, then she'd take them out of her own. Uh, her own casework, but it, from this all this other information, it looks like she was also stealing drugs from her coworkers' cases, which then calls into question not just the cases that she touched, but everything that had happened in that lab since she right. worked there. Uh, so one of the things that a, a technician has to do at the end of the process is they would sign their initials on the K pack, the the bag that would contain the uh, alleged narcotics that the analysts, when done with their casework, would reseal it. You know, you'd stuff these envelopes back, and sometimes it's harder to write uh, on a, a bag that has contents than if it doesn't. And so the lab supervisor would just pre-sign initial all these all these bags. And, and she realized that he would do this, and so she would just grab 20 of them, and if he got a kilo of Coke and... He did his uh, analysis and he would then, you know, stuff it back in there. She would rip it open, take what she wanted, and then put it back into the bag that he had already pre-signed so that no one would be the wiser. Yeah, the document talked about her going around and basically every time she saw an opportunity to steal one of these pre-signed bags from a colleague, she, she would. Like she was constantly looking for pre-signed bags because Everyone was doing this to save, what, a, a minute or a 30 seconds? I mean, this goes back to that pressure of productivity you talked about at the beginning. Right, right. I mean, it's just a question of, um, is there something, some corner I can cut to get my output up and, you know, be in a position where the lab can continue to exist, where my job is uh, going to be uh, here in Western Massachusetts and I'm not going to be told, hey, you can keep working for us. You're just going to have a, a two-hour commute. It's just insane. I just just to be in that situation, right? Where where that's that's your reality. Where you know what are you going to do? You're gonna you're gonna be the whistleblower. You know, flip the coin to see whether or not the uh, the newspapers take your side, or you know, you just get fired for being a troublemaker. 
versus you know trying to keep your job and just not getting that support from from up above that's I, I mean if you look at some of the other things i mean their evidence officer at the at the amherst drug lab when she would take submissions in the first thing she would do would be a gross weight of what the sample weighed right what would happen would be you know, she'd assign the samples when, when the analyst didn't assign them to them, themselves. I mean, Sonia Farrick assigned herself a bunch of samples that she tampered with, but this evidence officer would assign them to Ms. Farrakh and the other chemist, and then they'd get them back and she'd do another gross weight. If the gross weight was, was different, it was, was significantly different from what it was when she first got the sample. What she would do at that point, would she would change the initial weight to correspond to the weight that, that after Sonia Farrick finished her work with the substance. That's how they rectified that uh, discrepancy. And then change it back when it was given back to the officer. So it looked the same when they got it back. Yeah. Well, and, and on that note, I have a section of notes here that are referred to as close calls. This was one of the things I think blew me away the most. And I need a little clarification because it seems like there were multiple times where there were some either uh, these moments where she either was caught or someone observed something so bizarre, but then didn't get caught or didn't get exposed. So I kind of want to talk about a few sure. of those. The The first one was the supervisor's handshake found her beaker that she was making crack in. And uh, <laughs> sorry, it just, it just made me giggle. Uh, asked if it was, he, he, he sees this beaker that has this residue and this liquid in that likely even smells like cocaine, if you're familiar with cocaine or crack, and looks at it and then thinks that one of the co-workers might have brought daughter, her daughter into the lab to do a little science experiment and asks Sonia Farak if that's what happened. And she went, I, I don't know. And that was it. That was the end of the investigation. That, was the, that, that actually happened. <laughs> Uh, un- unbelievable. Uh, another one was that one of the um, the submitters had, I, I think his name was Big Duh. He had submitted 51 tablets of Oxycontin and he had run them through, uh, you know, like an online drug identifier using the markings and had, had, had counted them with his partner. So they were very clear on how many pills that they had, had actually submitted. And then when he got the evidence back, Instead of 51 tablets, there were 61 tablets, and they had different markings on them. And there was a report saying these aren't Oxycontin. And I I think the response was, I mean, he seemed to contact her and seemed rather surprised and like, what's up? How how do I have 10 new pills and they're all different markings? And it seemed like everyone just sort of went, well, you must have made a mistake on your submission. Uh, How did that slip? Uh, Again, I mean, that that came up, and I think the... I remember, you know, cross-examining on this and the, the, the response was, well, we couldn't charge Farrick with this because there hadn't been pictures taken of the original pills and just be a he said, she said. And so even if, with everything else that they knew it back in 2013, they decided this wasn't anything that, that was really kind of concrete and that could be grounds for reconsidering the, the timing because this happened back in March of 2012, as opposed to later in the year when the official narrative was, was that's when Sonia Ferrick started using, but also scope because their, their working theory was that Ms. Farrakh's 
only drug of choice was cocaine and didn't involve anything like mm. uh, Oxycontin. I see. Okay. So, I mean, did, did Big Duff file some sort of complaint or notify or wh- what were his well, actions? <laughs> uh, Detective Big Duff is a, a story uh, kind of unto himself here. One of the, one of the people featured in the film is uh, Rolando Panate, my client. Detective Bigda ended up being the first detective through the door to execute the search warrant in that case. He's currently under federal indictment for uh, um, threatening to plant (laughs) evidence in a case with a juvenile who he said he could pin the Kennedy assassination on. And that's a quote. Uh, He was caught on film. Um, (laughs) Kevin Burnham is another person who was testified at the the Panate case. He's the evidence officer from Springfield I mentioned before. Uh, He he was indicted for stealing $400,000 in uh, drug cash in over 160 different cases, including the Panate case. Um, so he was another figure in that. And then the lead detective in the Panate case was another Springfield police officer who a couple weeks after Mr. Panate's uh, uh, conviction was busted in a prostitution sting down in Hartford, Connecticut. So this is one case that you had. Uh, so, yeah, getting back to Detective Bigda, um, he, he did not uh, he was not a whistleblower until. Miss Farrakh got arrested. And then at that point he came forward, but he was, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, willing to live with her analysis until she was uh, um, herself uh, charged criminally. I see. Didn't necessarily want to bring a lot of spotlight to his cases. And yeah, that, I think that's a fair, a fair statement. Bad cop. No donut. <laughs> yeah. The, let me just, as, as an addendum to that, the war on drugs is bad. It corrupts everything it touches. So that that's I, I, the reason why I, I feel like, uh, like I just need to name these, these moments in this process where it's not just Sonia Farrakh. This is, yeah. this is a, a system that really is really kind of rotten to its core. Are, are you a fan of the show, The Wire? I love The Wire. I, I, Honestly, think those first four seasons were as good a television as uh, we're ever going to get. No, I, I agree. And, and one of the, my favorite quotes is right in that first season when they say, you know, the war on drugs and the other guy corrects them and says, it's, it's not a war. Wars end. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, no. Wars don't end anymore. That, <laughs> that changed about 20 years ago. Point well taken. Yep. Well, another question I had for you from the document is, what was the Markham Advisory Group report from February 2016? That was a report that was completed after the uh, misconduct I referred to just a few minutes ago on the part of uh, Kevin Burnham, the evidence officer at the Springfield Police Department. Uh, Once it became clear that he'd been stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars seized in drug cases, the department contracted with the Markham Advisory Group to come in and do an audit of the uh, department and their drug evidence and their practices and, um, and and attempt to determine to what extent his misconduct may have leaked over to the, uh, the, the forensic side as well into whether or not he might have been either stealing drugs or handling them in a way or storing them in a way that would be additionally problematic. Well, and it's funny that I didn't realize it was related to seizure and forfeitures because that was one of those sort of social issues I was curious about your thoughts on. Care to comment a little bit on on How much time do we have? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Plenty of time. Yeah, uh, civil forfeitures are literally the cases of highway robbery. They have it is it has well gotten said. to the point where law enforcement has decided that when they're going to set up or learn about drug stings, they are more interested in intercepting the money coming into the city than the drugs going out of the city. They would much rather bust the guy with a couple hundred thousand dollars that they get to keep than let that couple hundred thousand change hands and then get the, the drugs coming out. So Massachusetts has the distinction of having the nation's worst uh, civil forfeiture law in the country. The Institute for Justice gives rankings. And here's what makes it the worst. Two things. One, when the government seizes money uh, and claims that it is a uh, tainted by uh, its affiliation with a drug crime, it becomes the property owner's burden to prove a negative, that it is that there is no such nexus between the drugs and the money. So you right out of the gate, you have this burden shifting. Uh, and we all know how difficult it is to prove a negative. But the government is in the position of once they make the allegation, it can be based on hearsay, it doesn't have to be admissible evidence, the, the onus is on the property uh, owner to say why the money isn't tainted by the, the drug connection. The second thing that wow. makes Massachusetts the worst jurisdiction in the entire country is this. In a lot of jurisdictions, they will the law enforcement gets to keep uh, the money that they take, but their budgets are, you know, the municipality will look and say, well, look, you had a pretty good year with forfeitures last year. So we're going to shave 5% off of your budget uh, for the coming year. Um, uh, so there's this, uh, you know, you need to look at how that gets factored in. In Massachusetts, by statute, municipalities cannot take that into consideration. So this truly is pennies from heaven that get split. 50% goes to the police department that makes the seizure and 50% goes to the DA's office. And they, the reporting requirements are terrible. We've had abuses in Massachusetts where DAs have used their money to buy Zambonis for ice skating rinks. They've used their, their, their money to like go to this like private community and retar the basketball courts. This is a really bad thing that where I am from is is at its its absolute worst, and um, it's one of those weird criminal justice things that unites a lot of people across the ideological spectrum. Clarence Thomas wrote a great uh, opinion a couple of years ago on how this targets minorities and poor people who are often kind of historically less trustful of banks, so they'll have more cash on hand. So it's something that I hope in the coming years that there's some significant reform to, because it really is a pernicious practice that uh, is uh, John Oliver did a wonderful 20 minute segment. If you ever want to kind of laugh, <laughs> I, I remember it. It, it. It's a practice that that really, really needs to change. And not just the money either, but all cars and TVs and the guns. I mean, House, houses, you know, states. Houses, exactly, states. Uh, there, we, we had a case here, uh, 2013, where 
the, the federal government came in and tried to forfeit this kind of mom and pop hotel because over a 13 year period, uh, this was like one of those hotels where, you know, people stay for weeks or months at a time. And over a 13 year period, there'd been 13 uh, drug arrests that the federal government had made about one a year and no evidence that it was in any way tied to the actual owners. There's just people who rented rooms and would then, you know, sell drugs once a year out of there. And the federal government tried to take this private property because of the connection to somebody in room 218 uh, was, uh, you know, selling a couple bags of, of heroin. And so this is the mentality that we're, we're, we're living with, with this, the, the civil forfeiture re- regime, which is really, really ripe for radical change. It really does amaze me. There hasn't been just a very detailed documentary on this. It's rather surprising. I mean, here, here's the, the thing. I mean, I don't know who to exactly quote or attribute this to, but I read something not too long ago that, you know, only a society that has to kind of pay for its criminal justice system really can know the true value of it. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to offload the expense to expenses to um, you know these user fees that I talked about to forfeitures and and this this creates this idea that that it's not as expensive as it is and if people really have to pay for for this stuff then I think it puts them in the position of maybe starting to make you you know some better choices about how their money gets spent I, I was curious it, it came up a couple of times in the the documents although it was not mentioned too much that Farak was using all different kinds of drugs and, and marijuana came up a little bit. And I had noticed early in the document, uh, one of the, a couple of the things we're looking at, the kinds of testing that they did, preliminary testing. And I noticed that, you know, it talked about preliminary testing of marijuana. They don't run it on the instrument and do a confirmatory test the way you would cocaine or heroin. Have you had any experience with, with those issues? One, one of the things that uh, the, this whole experience uh, impressed upon me that I was not uh, anywhere near as cognizant about was the whole basis of field testing is is the are these color tests and that's uh, and and mm-hmm. the, the the amount of fa- false positives out there kind of horror stories that exists of you know somebody who is you know traveling with cat litter and it comes back positive for meth and they end up uh, spending the weekend in jail. This actually happened in the Sonia Farah case. Um, when she was arrested, uh, she was initially charged with possession of a class A substance to wit heroin. And what had happened was, is the uh, investigators found in the, the, the glove or in the side pocket of her vehicle, a brownish tar-like substance that an experienced narcotics detective said, that looks like heroin to me. They ran it through their field test, came back positive for heroin. They charged her. The substance went to the lab a, a month later. And what they realized was that brown tar substance was in fact burnt copper wire that had been melted down. She'd been using it as part of her crack pipe, but it came back p- positive for heroin. So the it just hammered home like how important this lab work is and how many people are really in danger of going down if we think about things like field tests as being sufficient to do anything uh, of of real consequence. A few years back in Texas, 
they had done all of these tests on cases that had pled out. And it turned out that hundreds of, of tests had come back negative afterwards and that all these people had pled to presumptive positive drug field tests when in fact they, they were they were negative. And uh, I, I know here in Minnesota, uh, we, we had some of our defense attorneys go to the National Forensic Academy out in New York that Barry Sheck and Marvin Schechter run every year. And, uh, you know, they learned about all of these false positives from these field tests. And when they came back to Minnesota, uh, their directive to the public defenders here was <laughs> you will not take a plea on a field test. And that's when I was supervisor of the drug chemistry section. I agreed with it completely. I mean, even in the lab when we had validated our field tests. Even with experienced analysts in a laboratory setting, and we were getting 1% to 3% false positives, and that's under uh, the ideal conditions. Imagine police officers with no training or limited training in the field, you know, 2 a.m. at night, side of the road on their, you know, on the hood of their vehicle with a flashlight using a key to, you know, put a small amount of sample in a key that they've used over and over and over to collect a small amount of sample and testing this by the side of the road and not realizing that if you wait, if you wait 10 to 15 minutes on those tests, they'll turn positive just from oxidizing. So you'll always get a positive test if you wait long enough. The idea is that you're supposed to get a color reaction immediately. So we would... In the lab, we would constantly find these coming in with presumptive field test positives, and there were definite agencies that were routine offenders submitting Tylenol and other melatonin and other non-controlled substances, submitting it as cocaine and heroin all the time. It's a wonderful starting point, but nobody should be pleading or or ultimately going to jail on field test. Uh, year in, year out, what what's the average for negative uh, submissions for your, your lab? Yeah, it varied right around 8 to 10% is what we would see. Wow. I think in uh, the Massachusetts, all the figures kind of hovered closer to 4 or 5%. Yeah, I, I, I should also clarify that sometimes when I say 8 to 10%, those are non-controlled substances. So they could have been things that were drugs that were not yep. scheduled, crushed up aspirin, crushed up melatonin, the you know various kinds of things. When people don't like taking pills, they might have some white powder or like you, like someone mistook metal. I've, I've seen all kinds of different things mistaken for drugs that for whatever reason, officers in the field think that they, they may be drugs. You know what, Luke, that was actually a, a good idea. What other questions do you have for us? <laughs> um, I have a question about James Shellow. Do either of you read any of his stuff on forensic analysis and drug cases? I don't know who that is. I, I'm sorry. You know, I'll have to clarify. He wrote a great book a few years about, about cross-examining the, the drug chemist. And he was the president of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He was one of, from Making of a Murderer, uh, Dean Strang's uh, mentors. And he, ah. and he is somebody who had a really, really hard science uh, background before getting into the law. And his... Uh, work is cited in Melendez Diaz, uh, but he is definitely somebody who is kind of on the the radical side in viewing that he. I think he basically d- 
believes that uh, drug te- instrumental forensic drug testing is a confidence game and, and doesn't believe that, that there are very few people who can have the kind of scientific background that can do defensible analysis comparison. And so he's very provocative. I, I, uh, I'll i have to, to check it out. And I am a little curious. I mean, the way that you describe it makes me a little suspicious because I know that drug chemistry and the chemical instrumentation, it really is the gold standard across the board, not just in forensic drug chemistry, but every industry. GCMS is a very powerful instrument. And frankly, if you're identifying the same sort of things over and over and over routinely, you don't need necessarily a gigantic scientific background. It kind of becomes a bit automated and technical. The Some of the things that he's probably quite right about is when, when we're seeing new drugs come out. So some of these new drugs coming out of China, you know, they're these either bath salts or what was called synthetic cannabinoids, which is a terrible misnomer because they, they're not at all, they have nothing to do with cannabis, but they attach to the same receptors that cannabis does. And both these classes of drugs were constantly changing. And we were seeing new drugs every month or some of the fentanyl analogs or these kinds of of drugs. And the analysts in the laboratory don't necessarily have a lot of training and experience in interpretation and certainly not with new drugs. So whenever they see something that's not in their library, they basically kind of ask around, hey, has anyone else identified this? You know, do you know what this is? And they don't necessarily have the technical uh, knowledge to be able to do the interpretation. They don't run on multiple instruments to do what they need to do to analyze new drugs. And there was a presentation at a forensic conference that showed that some of the new drugs that they quote unquote identified turns out that because it is so new, the it was actually a different drug that had been in, injected onto the GCMS, but the temperature was so hot in the in the injection port that it actually degraded the original drug into some other drug. And these little things like this, or you know, the solvent they used had changed it from one form to another. These kinds of chemistry interactions that are very advanced. It's likely that uh, some drug chemists in the United States are probably misidentifying new drugs because they don't have the appropriate background and uh, instrumentation background to be able to correctly identify exactly what this drug is and various forms of that drug. So I think it it probably depends. But I, the the other thing I'll throw out is I saw Eric and I have talked quite a bit about proficiency tests in fingerprints. Right. So the company that does proficiency tests for awesome fingerprints, CTS, they do drug tests as well. And a few years back, they used a one of our terms, close non-match. They used a drug called mm. Fentermin. And Fentermin has a nearly identical structure to methamphetamine. In fact, it's only off by a count of one AMU molecular unit. So the weight is and the profile, the mass spec profile is nearly identical to methamphetamine. Effectively, you have to be paying attention or it will look like methamphetamine. There's a couple other little quirks in the color testing. Well, but. I think it was like 3% of drug chemists taking this proficiency test incorrectly identified fentermine, which is a class uh, four, schedule four substance in most jurisdictions, identified as methamphetamine, a schedule one. So they 
3% of, of drug chemists taking it had incorrectly identified it. So I suspect that Cello is probably highlighting some of these issues, and he's probably not wrong, although I, I might be more of a moderate in the middle on and one probably would like to see more about what he says and kind of figure out where I land on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you'll you'll at least find his uh, analysis and critique uh, provocative and, and something that you'll want to engage with as a professional. So, I, I once you've had the uh, the James Shallow experience, if you want to chat on or off air, uh, give me a holler. Yeah, I I think the thing that I would probably easily agree to is that. Drug chemists actually rarely get challenged on their drug chemistry. And, you know, uh, most of them, in my experience, this is just my experience, if they're working for accredited laboratories, they have the training and the skills to do the basics of the job. You know, they have a basic analytical background and, you know, again, they're doing something routinely over and over and over. What I would be curious is to find out when they're a bit over their skis, so to speak, and dealing with some things that maybe they haven't had training in or have not validated some of the new techniques. Uh, What I'm surprised about are some real basic chemistry things that are not required of drug chemists that are required of forensic toxicologists. I mean, you might be shocked to hear this, Luke, but I used to ask, and probably not at this point, (laughs) but even in accredited (laughs) laboratories, I would go around the country and ask various drug chemistry supervisors in accredited labs if they do what's called limit of detection. This is trying to determine what is the least amount of a certain drug that your instrument is, is able to detect reliably. This is a standard, like, chemistry 101. And I, I couldn't find a single drug lab in the country that did limits of detection because the first answer is, well, it's not quantitative what we do, it's just qualitative. If we can detect it, that's all that matters. And from a, an analytical chemistry standpoint, which is my background, I go, no, it, it actually does matter because a single molecule that could have been part of contamination does not necessarily constitute that what you have in front of you is a sample of drugs. So at what point do you consider a signal reliable versus background noise or potential contamination? That to me is actually a fundamental question of drug chemistry and no lab in this country has limits of detection for their instruments. That that is like shocking to me. Right. That's, I, I think you're getting closer to what he's, some of his critiques are. I mean, it, maybe I'm misusing the, the phrase, but it's standard of deviation. Like if it, in every case, you're, you're, as you, if you are at a lab where you actually have a real pure standard and you run it uh, against an unknown coming in, uh, my understanding and my experience of looking at mass specs is you're almost always going to have some difference and then variability it be- yeah then it becomes the analyst's job to use their judgment and say this, yes, these, yes, these yes. different these differences either matter or they don't and there's in the, the shallow critique is there's no scientific basis for that that it becomes just this judgment call of an analyst saying yeah this this peak doesn't matter or this and and if you isn't any like treatise or something that can tell you what the cutoff is when something is no longer close enough to call it the same, then you're in a, in a realm where it's yep. less, less scientific. Yeah, I, I will have to check that out because it, that's so true. I mean, in, and even in the your Massachusetts cases, I saw that they were using this. I picked up on that. They were using a plus or minus 2.5% retention time. So basically, if it was within 
plus or minus 2.5% of the number they're looking for. That, But how did they come up with that value? And, and in fact, things that come out earlier on the column tend to have less variability, and things that come out later on the column tend to have more variability. So it really is very analyte-specific. Depending on what you're analyzing, that number will vary a bit, and it should be part of your validation and method for each chemical that you're testing. But like that lab and most labs just have a general, here's a number that we use and that allows us to basically have the analysts go, yeah, it's close enough in a large percentage of their cases without actually having analytical data to back that up. I would totally agree with that. And that's, again, I'm surprised these things don't get challenged more in the courtroom. I'm surprised that they don't have more hearings and sort of evidentiary investigations into how are you, how do you do what you do? But I think when defense attorneys see DNA or chemistry, the assumption is, well, that's that's well established. It's not that soft science like fingerprints or handwriting, but they have so much subjectivity in them that has just gone under the radar. Yeah, I, I went to a great lecture uh, a few years ago. Uh, two of the deans of the defense bar, uh, Posner and Dodd, uh, uh, the, the, and they they wrote the book on literally wrote the book on cross examination. Is I know Posner. Yeah, uh, I think it was Dodd who they were doing a PowerPoint. And he put up the uh, periodic table and looked around the room of lawyers. He said, "If we're being honest here, it was the moment that we first saw this that we all realized we we were not <laughs> going to become doctors because we would kill somebody." <laughs> and that that rang true for me. I mean, I, I if that's supposed to make sense, then the the, the danger uh, it, it was just it just crossed that profession off for me. I don't know when I saw it. We we as a as a profession, I think really give forensics a, a pass uh, because it's hard, because it's difficult, because we do what we do, because, you know, we're into the humanities and not necessarily the sciences, but we really have an obligation at the end of the day to our clients to uh, roll up our sleeves, find somebody who can explain the complicated in simple terms to don't be afraid to ask the stupid question and to kind of work through the, you know, being the, the the dullard in the in the chemistry class until we can kind of get it to a point where that we can then use it to make sure justice is done in these cases. I mean, do you think though that if it was handwriting though you would you know have take the same approach? Is it again because it's chemistry? Like even if you ask the, a good question, do you you know trust yourself to know if if the answer was BS or not? It's not limited to the law. I mean, how do you know when you bring your car in to get fixed whether it really needs the repair or not? Mm. You kind of have to yeah. you know d- depending on how important it is, you know you've got to get a second opinion or you've got to you know talk to somebody. Uh, uh, in my case, you know, fellow lawyers and, and try to, you know, probe who they really trust and who they think is a an expert that will uh, kind of give you. I had a fingerprint case a few years ago where I remember doing this, ended up finally getting to the person who really broke things down for me in a way that helped me understand exactly what my client's situation was. And, you know, and and until that moment, I wasn't sure whether this evidence was good or bad, whether I should, what my whole attitude about the case should be. So it really, you know, we, we really have Mm. to rely on other people to do our job well for our client. And, and there's, it's something humbling about 
a forensic science case when you don't have a forensic science or science background that you just have to kind of get over to do this work. Primarily, the you know our listening audience are practicing forensic scientists specifically in in the latent print field, but. If you had to speak to other attorneys, prosecutors or defense attorneys, what recommendation would you give them on on how to handle how this you know science is increasingly you know a key factor in their cases? In my own experience, I don't think that I would have very much success just going to a CLE on fingerprint cases. Not that it's a bad idea for anyone to do. I mean, I think it's really valuable, but it almost always my best learning happens in the context of my cases. And so uh, I think there's, it's helpful to kind of develop a background to go to the, you know, to use the fingerprint example, to go to the CLE on, on fingerprints, to maybe get some vocabulary. But I would, I would really encourage people not to feel like that experience is the, the depth of where your knowledge can go. If you really end up in a case where this becomes important evidence, I, I would just trust in, in a lawyer's ability to get to the bottom of, of it in a different way. And so even if something is, is foreign or doesn't feel intuitive or your earlier exposure to it in kind of a, um, an abstract sense has not one that has been positive, I would, I would, I think we all have the ability when we really truly care about something uh, to 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 comprehend it in a different way, and so that that would be my kind of takeaway is that there's you you can understand. I mean, I I, I learned about fingerprint evidence. I, I don't have access to the information right now because it's not relevant in my life. But you know, about five years ago, in a case like I had a a binder that was eight inches deep, and it had you know all my notes on it. And, and I, and I, for that period of time, for that case, I think I really did understand this discipline in a way that not to the level that the two of you do, but in a way that I, I was doing right by my client. Sure. Right. Well, I, I have one last question here, and this was something I picked up in the documents. There was a notation that when Sonia Farak was stopped at the courthouse by the MSP investigators, uh, she was in possession of some documents, and these documents were listed as quote-unquote cheat sheets, and they were described as predicate questions that were set up for the prosecutor, basically ask me these questions and here are my answers. I, w- I was kind of curious on what your thoughts were on that. I've talked to um, other defense attorneys about their views on this, especially when it comes to discovery laws, and I think our listeners will be really interested in this because Step one, when you're learning to prepare for court and you're learning what it means to be an expert witness, is you you generate your predicate questions that you want to be asked your direct examination. And many examiners will also put the answer there, too. And this just becomes something that you give typically, of course, the prosecution. Notice that you never prepare <laughs> cross-examination questions <laughs> with, with the answers. But again, we're, we're neutral scientists. We don't take sides. Kind of give your thoughts on this and why that sort of stood out to you. Yeah, uh, for the reasons I think that you uh, have either implicitly or explicitly said, I mean, and I know why it happens. In addition to reading the attorney general's emails, we got 10,000 of Sonia Farrick's emails. That's where I found uh, or another defense attorney of 
scientist named Nathan Tamulis found the Duke and Farrick exchange, the BZP one that we talked about. But I also read uh, exchanges she had with prosecutors who knew she was going to be coming in, who basically said, hey, you know, any chance you can kind of do me a solid and then tell me what I'm supposed to ask you? And, uh, <laughs> and you know, so she had created this document that very explicitly uh, was uh, a, a pre-prepared transcript of what her, tra- her testimony is going to be. And you can do that, but uh, I think if you're going to do it, you got to give it to me. It's, it's, it's a, a written statement of a witness about the case, and it, it, it may even be a, a report on the case. And, and I sure would like to be able to show the jury that you've essentially uh, teed everything up for, for my adversary. So I think probably the better thing to do is to have a conversation on the phone and say, uh, explain, you know, this is how you might want to construct your examination. And this is, you know, what I would say. But if you're going to just give, hand somebody a piece of paper, that piece of paper is discoverable as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad that you you said that because I wanted listeners to hear that. This is what all the other attorneys that I've talked to have said. And this is probably shocking news to some of our listeners who have been doing this for 20 or 30 years and did not realize that that predicate question list is actually discoverable and not handing that over uh, could be seen rather unfavorably. I, I, don't, th- I don't think that the average forensic scientist knows that or is aware of that issue. I I know I certainly wasn't. And I know that our lab at one point when we used to prepare those questions and training sort of pivoted a little bit later and said, well, you can prepare these, but don't put the answers down. And so we weren't allowed to put our answers in writing. We were allowed to give the list of questions, but not what the answers would be, because then otherwise they were deemed discoverable by the AG's office. I don't know again about the, you know, the legality of all that, but that's just how our AG's office interpreted the predicate questions. But I thought I thought that was worthy of exploring a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. And and again, I think the other key kind of piece of that is just the whole issue of the the expert's neutrality. If there's that kind of communication that's taking place before trial, the the, the jury ought to know that 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 this is uh, what if somebody's on a side um, and they they've you know had these communications that preceded the uh, their appearance in court, then I think that's always a a relevant issue in the case is whether a witness has, it doesn't mean the witness isn't telling the truth, but I think a jury, a defendant is entitled to point out if a witness is on the prosecution side or is just a completely neutral party. Well, to, to play devil's advocate here for a second, you know, the you know, I've definitely seen the value in providing a list of questions, you know, going from the, the prosecutors that are like, no, 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 I can handle it on my own, even though this is, I've never had a fingerprint witness before <laughs> to the to the attorney that was like, yeah, sure. Here, I appreciate the questions. Thank you. And then asked them in a random order, <laughs> uh, which is very difficult as an expert witness to kind of follow through and make sure you cover everything and wonder if they're going to come or come back to a certain topic or not to, you know, someone who goes through in the order that you give the questions and also fully understanding that it's, it's for the prosecution, you know, that may be something that has to be totally shared and, and hopefully no one has any kind of issue with with providing that. But 
looking at on the defense witness side of things, and maybe it's it's uh, just not fully being aware, but it, would that not typically be a, a normal practice, even on the defense side, is to work with the defense expert on what questions are going to be asked and what answers are going to be given? I, I think that, yeah, if, you, if you're hiring an expert as a defendant or you're using an expert as a prosecutor, there's an expectation that there's going to be communication between the expert and counsel, that, that there's going to be preparation for trial. I, I think that the best rules, I like on the civil side, I do civil rights cases sometimes, and then mm. rule, rule 26 of the Federal Rules yeah. of Civil Procedure requires the expert to write a report and submit a report. So let's just get it all out there and then we can yeah. um, you know, not be under the illusion that uh, there's play this kind of, you know, game where we're, we're not, you know, owning, you know, that these conversations are taking place and let the jury just kind of be aware of that. Let the defendant or, or the, the opposing party know what to expect. And it's less of a trial by ambush system, ironically, where the strikes, where the stakes are much, uh, they're just, just money as opposed to liberty. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be much better to, to have everyone aware of of what the answer is going to be, because that's that's the other thing is the the unexpected question from the prosecution that actually favors defense. And all right, well, the question just got asked. All right, here's the answer. You're not going to like it, but yeah, yeah. I mean that that system seems to be one. If your goal is to get at the truth and to let each side kind of put its evidence out there, then um, don't don't let the lawyers screw up what the experts know know to be true. Uh, I'm sure Glenn has seen had that too, where where you get a question from prosecution. That you have, you have no problem answering, but you just really expected that question to come from defense and not the prosecutor. <laughs> yeah, that and the question I said, it's probably not wise to ask it in that form. And then they, <laughs> they definitely ask the question. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Luke, as you point out, that's actually one of the reasons my reports are fairly extensive. I learned a long time ago from doing civil cases as well that Rule 16 and Rule 26 reports, civil or criminal, are, are actually really helpful because I have all of my information in my report right up front. I mean, yeah. it actually makes things re- really easy, but they tend to be, of course, longer reports. But the one thing I'll, I'll tell listeners that are maybe are thinking about this issue I actually don't prepare predicate questions anymore like I used to. I now just always have a presentation when I go to court, and all of my predicate questions are in the presentation, which is disclosed to both sides. Both sides get my slides and know what I'll be talking about, but it's really the prosecutor's job to then go slide by slide by slide and figure out what question he's going to ask, which is usually the form of, and Mr. Langenberg, what are you showing us here? And Mr. Langenberg, what (laughs) what does this slide show us? (laughs) Which, I mean, it's at that point, why even bother with the pretense that you're answering questions, right? And get rid of this whole, oh, no, you you can only answer the questions that they ask and actually have experts come in to give presentations uh, to the court. Yeah. I mean, it it, again, it comes down, I think, often to just volume. Like uh, one of the things that I can always do in every single one of my criminal cases is I can always outwork my prosecutor because they have so many more cases than I do. If I'm going to have a case in the Springfield District Court in Western Massachusetts, the busiest one in the state, I'm going to show up for the day of trial with my one file and they're going to have 10 cases that are on the trial list and they don't know which one is going to get called. And so all they're going to be able to do with when the 
police officer takes the stand and say, and what happened next, officer? And what happened after that? <laughs> so, you know, it's it's not that prosecutors are dumb and they, but you the, the volume of what they have to deal with often, I mean, I think you, you've discovered by this process of how you deal with this that, yeah, you've got to kind of dumb it down because they don't have the bandwidth to, to really engage in a way that is going to be, you know, faithful to what the evidence is. Yeah. And we've circled back now to the beginning, which is spending resources appropriately on the cases that really matter. Yeah. And I mean, it's the work you do. I mean, usually if there's a fingerprint involved in a case, it's a pretty serious case. Uh, and and so um, they oftentimes uh, in these drug cases, you know, somebody will raise the question in a possession case, you know, did you fingerprint the the bag in which the alleged narcotics were found? And the answer is always like, yeah, no, we don't do that for these minor drug cases. That's that's for the murder cases. That's for the rape and arson. <laughs> Eric? Well, uh, <laughs> want to jump in there? Yeah, that's, that's oh boy. The Neither Glenn or I work now. Currently, work for for a um, a public crime laboratory. I just do some some stuff on the side, and then, and I've gone into uh, an industry job. But thinking back to those days, the vast majority of cases uh, involving fingerprint work were burglaries, and then next tier down, the next hugest bunch was drug crimes. Really? Yep. Same for us. Yeah, same for us. Oh, yep. it's never happened. Huge. Same. Wow. Huge numbers of drug crimes. Now, yep. for the DNA unit, that's a little different, right? Because they're the gold standard. They don't need to get involved in something as minor as a drug crime. So the, it's like lab policy, no DNA testing on any kind of uh, drug evidence, unless obviously it was connected to some sort of you know homicide, uh, homicide or something similar. The vast amount of just day in day out is just burglary 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 and those can go through pretty quickly through the system then it, it's the in actual comparison of the fingerprints uh, that's where a lot of that work is the, for the processing a lot of time is spent there on the drug packaging wow yep. and unrolling the very creative uh, packaging <laughs> techniques that have been developed by <laughs> drug manufacturers around the world <laughs> oh good lord the i think the the one that sticks out most memory is the the plastic wrap plastic wrap plastic wrap just you know over and over and over again but then every other layer of plastic wrap a layer of dryer sheets and a layer of foot powder <laughs> oh mustard we would get mustard everywhere well right but the mustard at least well it burned the dog's nose well, right, but at least it would stay you know you're talking about mustard powder or no no mustard like spicy dijon mustard <laughs> The foot powder would just aerosolize <laughs> and just go everywhere. Yeah, but yeah, all lots and lots of time uh, was. Uh, you know, I remember spending slowly moving plastic wrap across a a light box to photograph all the f fingerprints onto it. Yeah, and, and Luke, here's probably the distinction is that in our lab we kept track of the percentage of cases drug cases that we actually found viable fingerprints. And because so many of those packages, you know, as you probably know from the cases you've worked, 
are, are like one inch by one inch little tiny, uh, you know, Ziploc baggies with 3% of the time we found fingerprints in drug cases. So the vast majority of the drug cases we had, we'd process, but didn't find viable fingerprints. Mm. Right. Yeah. I wish I'd talked to you before a couple of my cases where I got that answer to the question of, oh, we never do. Nobody does fingerprinting in drug cases because. Well, and maybe in Massachusetts. Yeah, they don't. <laughs> It may just be the similar, like to like most labs have. Uh, I don't know of any lab that does uh, DNA testing for drug packaging, yeah. but it may be a similar kind of thing. They're like they just knock that out for both DNA and for fingerprints. Yeah, it could be. Um, I have one more question. If you have, uh, yeah, absolutely. One of the things, and I, and I think you talked about it a little bit on one of your pods that I listened to, was uh, drug testing for analysts mm. and uh, how the the documentary really interviews a few people who you know are aghast that that didn't take place um <laughs> one of the things that i came across in my research was because things like cocaine you know 90 percent of the bills in the country uh have it that analysts really can't be tested for it because they get it into their system not because they're using it because they're opening up these bags and they're kind of um, you used a fancy word a second ago there about how it comes into our atmosphere um, and it gets into uh, systems. Mm-hmm. Is that the reason why, uh, in your experience, this is not a industry standard? Not in my experience, because then if that's the case, then you can't do drug testing for anybody ever, anywhere, because you know it's so prevalent. And I mean, I, I spent 12 years being tested and, and never tested positive for cocaine. So oh. I don't believe that to be a, a reason just with no kind of scientific backing just colloquially i've i've understood it more to be uh, how powerful union you belong to okay and in my experience with i mean i had 20 some drug chemists that i was supervising two things i'd I'd say there is one many of them were working in hoods so they each had their own personal hood which you know the we already discussed in the amherst lab how their hoods weren't working and all these other things so a lot of times they would either open things up either at their bench or in the hood, you know, one. And if it was at their bench, uh, m- many of them, especially in once fentanyl was becoming a problem, mm. you know, were right. wearing, you know, various kinds of face masks or at least being a little more careful. In other words, if they were constantly inhaling drugs, when fentanyl became an issue, you'd have drug chemists dropping, mm. you know, everywhere, you know, if they were constantly breathing in what they were, what they were working on. So while I can't eliminate the chance of, the occasional I- exposure, I would still suspect it would be at such a low level that it would probably be below detection from a tox screen. But I'm kind of guessing at that a little bit. I just I just can't imagine a handful of molecules aerosolizing around them giving a positive tox screen. That's that's my suspicion. All right. Well, thank you for helping me understand something I didn't know. Yeah, I mean, the, the only kind of... You hear stories about false positives from um, poppy seeds. From, thank you. From poppy seeds, you know, bagels or muffins or something. A Seinfeld episode. Yeah, right. Elaine. Exactly. <laughs> right. And, and then I think of Mythbusters as well, uh, where they, they tested and found that, that that's possible. But, and I remember having, you know, being concerned on a couple of occasions uh, in trying to open up this packaging and it, it just, you know, trying to keep it all contained in the hood because it was, uh, it was such a fine powder. 
but again, I I don't believe that I've ever been dosed to a level that would have would have tested positive. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, we're going to finally close this one out, and definitely want to thank Luke for for joining us for here for over two hours now. Your time of, of talking about this in this whole discussion, I just keep going back and kind of rethinking some of the some of the crazy things that I remember having to go through, crazy discussions at least it seemed at the time with the uh, the quality assurance program where I worked, thinking, why are we doing? all of this stuff but it just seems like it's go, we're going overboard and and looking back now uh, i think i was uh, i was i was so wrong this <laughs> these quality assurance policies are, are so necessary and obviously need to be tailored to uh, each unit but still the seeing the consequences of a lack of these policies uh, and the severity of those consequences uh, really kind of brings home the necessity of having them in place yeah, well said. Uh, Glenn, any final thoughts from you? No, well, I just want to, again, thank our guest for all of his insights and all the conversation that has been provided. It's really been very thought-provoking. We appreciate you sharing your your views on this, delving in a little bit, and, man, just fascinating talking to you. Uh, a real live movie star, if you will. <laughs> uh, Netflix star, yeah. yeah. Well, again, thank you both for having me. I really enjoyed listening to you before I had this uh, opportunity to talk with you. And, and I, uh, I think the more that folks like you uh, put yourselves out there and, and share what, what you do, the important work you do, uh, we're all better off. Uh, and so thank you not only for your attention to this program, but for uh, the 200 preceding episodes and the next 200 uh, to come. Oh, thanks. Oh, boy. That's a thought. <laughs> uh, very, yeah, very kind. And if Glenn didn't make it clear, that documentary very much portrayed you as the, the hero of the story. So oh, for sure. Good on you for, for that. So, all right. I guess that'll close us out. Remember to check us out on patreon.com slash double loop podcast, our website, double loop podcast.com. And also on social medias, Twitter and Instagram at double loop pod. If you have any questions uh, for us or even for Luke, send them to Glenn and I, Glenn at elite forensic services.com, Eric at rayforensics.com. Luke, would, do you want to provide any contact information? Anybody interested in contacting me can uh, find my firm's uh, website. It's Sasson, Turnbull, Ryan, and Hoos, strhlaw.com. All right. And with that, I think we're going to close things out. Remember, anything that we say uh, is representative of our own individual thoughts, not necessarily of anyone we work for. Uh, thank you guys all for joining us, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. Good night. Good night.